Um, so the first reading is from Job 8. Job 8. And then Bildad the Shuhite replied, How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will, be, will your future be. Ask the former generation and find out what their ancestors learned, for we were born only yesterday and know nothing, and our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? Can papyrus grow tall where there is no marsh? Can reeds thrive without water? While still growing and uncut, they will wither more quickly than grass. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. What they trust in is fragile. What they rely on is a spider's web. They lean on the web, but it gives way. They cling to it, but it does not hold. They are like a well-watered plant in the sunshine, spreading its shoots over the garden. It entwines its roots around a pile of rocks and looks for a place among the stones. But when it is torn from its spot, that place disowns it and says, I never saw you. Surely its life withers away, and from the soil other plants grow. Surely God does not reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hands of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. Your enemies will be clothed in shame, and the tents of the wicked will be no more. And the second reading is from Luke, chapter 23, verses 13 to 23. Luke 23, 13 to 23. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. morning everyone my name is Nathan uh, it's my pleasure to be bringing us a word from Job chapter 8 this morning and so if you'd like to turn back there it would be important for us to have God's word open so you can follow along with some of the things that I'm saying there's a 
There's a famous line in a famous movie. There are two prisoners sitting in a prison cafeteria, and one of them says, what are you in here for? And the other prisoner replies, nothing. Everybody is innocent in here, don't you know? In our society, most people would agree that those who end up in prison have got what they deserve. It's a funny expression, though, you get what you deserve. And we tend to use it without thinking. If a student studies and gets high grades, we say, you got what you deserved. If a prisoner ends up in prison, we say, you got what you deserved. But what about people who are wrongly convicted? Did they get what they deserved? I've been thinking a bit about what the world would look like if everybody immediately got what they deserved. Can you imagine? And then this week there's a question that I've had to ask myself, let me ask you as well. What do I think I deserve? What do you think you deserve? Do I deserve a good life? Do I deserve hardship? Do we deserve suffering? In today's passage, God is going to help us look at the world with fresh eyes. The best way to understand God's world is to view it the way God views it. We need a biblical view of the world and a biblical view of suffering, one that doesn't depend on our experience or on the cliches that we throw around, but a view of the world that depends on what God has said. So I'm going to pray for us that we might do that this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we do ask this morning that by your spirit and word, you might shape our view of suffering in this world. Father, we ask that you might reveal to us what it means that Jesus suffered, an innocent man dying on our behalf. Father, we ask that you would speak to us through this book of Job, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are in the book of Job. Job is a man who was blameless and upright. He had a good relationship with God. He was wealthy, more wealthy than you and I. His life was full. And then God allowed Satan to take it all away. Job's wealth was destroyed, his family was murdered. He was struck down with disease. Job was someone who had everything and now he has nothing. His life was full of people and now he's all alone. And so along come three of his friends. Three of his friends have showed up. Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar, they've come to comfort this man who's in distress. Now, these friends that we're going to meet have a particular style of comfort. I don't know how you comfort people, but these guys like to offer they like to diagnose the problem and then offer their advice. That's their style of comfort. You might, you might have heard people say, um, I don't want you to try and fix my problem, I just want you to listen. Probably some husbands in this room might have heard that. Well, these guys, their style of comfort, they're not here to listen, they're here to fix. Now, these three men are well educated, they're wise, they're thoughtful, and together they represent the best of human wisdom at this time. And it's important for us to recognise that, that, that these men do have wisdom. Because in the book of Job, God uses these three men 
to contrast the way that humans might think about suffering with the way God thinks about suffering. These three men are important in shaping our understanding of suffering. So, what do these three friends have to say? Uh, Have you ever seen this acronym, uh, Keep It Simple Stupid? Now, this is very popular in the corporate world where I used to work. I've never used the word stupid in a sermon before, but I think this acronym is suitable for us. It means don't overcomplicate things. The simplest explanation is usually the best one. Keep it simple. This is like a bit of a motto for these friends. Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar, they've observed Job. They've listened to his speech. And now it's their turn to speak. Eliphaz goes first, then Bildad, then later on Zophar's going to have a go. We're this morning going to let Bildad speak for all three because really they, they all agree on what Job's problem is. They all agree on the solution and Bildad in chapter 8 is just the most succinct. He gets to the point. What do they say? Firstly, Job, you're overcomplicating it. Keep it simple. Job gave them a long, miserable speech in chapter 6 and 7. Bildad has no time for it. He's as gentle as a sledgehammer. Here's what he says in verse 2. How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Do you think Job is feeling comforted? Now, Bildad might sound harsh, but he is sincere. His heart is in the right place. What the friends lack in comfort, they make up for in religious zeal. What the friends are trying to do is what every good Christian should do. They're going to apply their theology, what they know about God to be true, to a real-world application. They want to be consistent, even if their words are going to sound harsh to Job. Bildad is genuinely worried that what Job has just said in his speech is going to offend God. Job's making it complicated. Bildad wants to keep it simple. And this reveals how they see the world. These three friends have a very simple theology. It goes like this. Bad things happen to bad people, therefore Job is bad. Look at verse 3. Bildad says, Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Bildad applies a very simple logic. God is just. God punishes sin. If you are feeling punished, then you're simply getting what you deserve. Now, that's how he applies it to those who might have done wrong. He applies the same logic to people who do good. Look at verse 5. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Did you catch that phrase in the middle, pure and blameless? Good things happen to good people. Therefore, Job... You need to be good. It's a black and white theology, cause and effect. And when you look at it on paper, honestly, it kind of looks right. Have a look at their logic. This is is the whole theology of their friends. Firstly, they do believe that God is in control. 
God is absolutely in control of the world that he created. Would you agree? Secondly, God is perfectly just. God will do what is right. He will punish those who sin and he will reward the righteous. I think we would agree with that. Therefore, if God is just and he punishes the sinner and Job is feeling punished, then Job must have sinned. It's simple. It's highly logical. It sounds right. And you know what? This is quite an attractive theology today. One of the fastest growing Christian movements in Africa and indeed around the world teaches that a, it teaches a gospel that says health and wealth are the natural fruits of a good and godly life. Do good and you will receive good in return. Millions of people are taught this truth that godly Christians won't suffer. Godly Christians will succeed. What do we call this kind of gospel? We call it the prosperity gospel. It's very dangerous, but it's very attractive. Here in Sydney, just down the road, not too far from us, there's a large church that has this on their website. We believe that God wants to heal and transform us so that we can live healthy and blessed lives. There's something in there that sounds true, but there's something in there that's also just not quite right. The theology of their friends, good things happen to good people, is attractive, it is simple, it sounds kind of right, but it sounds kind of wrong too. Now I'm going to hand this over to you to do a little bit of work. Turn to the person next to you, say hello if you've never met them before, and have 30 seconds to answer this question. What is wrong with their advice? What is wrong with Bildad's simple theology? Go for it. All right, let's come back together. I hope that that was long enough for at least one person to share one idea. What's wrong with their advice? Well, first of all, it is not helping Job. It's not helping Job because it does not explain Job's reality. It might sound good on paper, but it's not explaining the real world. Because isn't it true that Job is blameless? Isn't it true that in this situation, Job has done nothing wrong? Come back to chapter 1 with me. In chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. See, from God's own mouth, 
we must accept that Job in this situation is blameless. He has done nothing to earn this suffering. Bad things happened to this innocent person. Their black and white view of the world is wrong. Now, consider the reality of the world today. Isn't it true that people of low moral standing can prosper in this world? That people who reject God can achieve good health and wealth and some sort of happiness? Good things do happen to bad people. This black and white view of the world is wrong. It does not explain reality. But that's not the only problem with it. Not only does Bildad's advice not really explain Job's reality, the other problem is not so much in what Bildad does say, it's in what he hasn't said. Sometimes uh, our kids um, will run up to us at home and one of them will be crying and the other one will be uh, surprisingly calm. And the calm child will say, we were playing with a car and then my brother took it and now he's crying. Now that's a true statement. But I'm interested in what hasn't been said. See, what they mean is, I was playing with this car and my brother took it and then I hit him with this book. (laughs) And now he's crying. Bildad has said many true things here, but there's some things he hasn't said, some noticeable absences. First of all, these friends in their simple theology have no place for Satan. They don't mention him at all. We know from chapters 1 and 2 that Job's suffering, the catalyst for it was the work of Satan. God allowed Satan to take these things from Job. But the friends say Job brought it upon himself. They have no place for a spiritual view of suffering. For them, suffering is tied up purely in human actions. But suffering cannot be explained mechanically like this. Suffering demands a spiritual explanation. Job's suffering is not due to his own actions. Secondly, these friends in their simple theology have no place for grace. In their you-get-what-you-deserve theology, there's no place for grace because grace is something that is undeserved. And this is essential for us to notice because it shows the friends are missing something important that God has revealed to us. An important characteristic of God. God is just. God does punish sin. But God can choose to delay judgment in his grace. And God can choose to forgive. See, grace is a fundamental activity of God that allows any of us to be saved. If we were to immediately bear the punishment that we deserve, we would face no less than hell, wouldn't we? That's what every Christian believes. None of us were blameless. We all deserved God's punishment. It is by grace that a Christian does not get what they deserve. It is by grace that we are saved. But in the simple theology of the friends, there's no place for grace. You get what you deserve. And in this simple theology of Bildad, there is no place for innocent suffering. This is a major problem because that means there's no place for Job's experience and there is no place later for Jesus. 
how important is Jesus' innocence in his death? How important is it that Jesus was blameless when he died? It's critical. The entirety of the Christian faith hinges on the fact that Christ went to the cross innocent and died for us. On the cross, the undeserved suffering of one makes possible the redemption for others. Listen to how the New Testament talks about Jesus and us in 1 Peter chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. In this verse, you and me are the unrighteous, the guilty, the ones who had a broken relationship with God. In this verse, Jesus is the righteous, the innocent, the one who had a perfect relationship with God. But do you see what happens? On the cross, Jesus suffers physically and spiritually. He suffers for our sins because he himself had none. He suffered undeservedly. We come to God undeservedly. He was innocent and punished. We were guilty and set free. Do you see how the flip side of undeserved suffering is undeserved grace? Our relationship with God requires that Jesus suffered innocently. And if you believe that Jesus took your punishment and come to him in faith, then God considers you innocent too. I want you to know this and believe this. When God looks at you, he doesn't see a guilty person. He sees Jesus' perfection. If you believe that Jesus took your punishment on the cross and come to him in faith, then God considers you innocent too. But let me ask, for innocent Christians today, do we still suffer? Of course. It is a certainty of this life. Suffering is a consequence of disorder in this world. But if you are forgiven in Christ, you too are innocent in Christ. And so you necessarily cannot say that your suffering is a punishment for sin. Because Jesus took your punishment in full. Suffering could be a consequence of your sin. If you punch a wall, your hand will hurt. Suffering could be a consequence of someone else's sin. If the wall punches you, well. Suffering can be a consequence of living in a broken world. But if you are forgiven in Christ, you are innocent in Christ. Jesus took your punishment for you. Your suffering should not be thought of as an additional punishment for sin. Now this... This shouldn't lead us to arrogance such that we walk around as if we were perfect human beings, but it should lead us to confidence, knowing that Jesus really did deal with our sin on the cross and there is nothing more to be dealt with. And so the New Testament tells us that suffering for a Christian today is part of our unity with Christ. 
not an additional punishment for sins. Christian suffering today is a sharing in Christ's unjust suffering. Have a look in 1 Peter chapter 4. In 1 Peter chapter 4 it says, Dear friends, Peter's writing to suffering Christians, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Do you see how this advice is comforting. Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar failed to comfort Job. Their advice did not explain Job's reality and did not include the other revelations of God. They had no place for innocent suffering and placed the blame squarely upon him. But if you are united with Christ, sometimes your suffering is undeserved, like his was. But notice where it is heading. As you participate in his sufferings today, so you will participate in his glory. Biblical Christianity is suffering and then glory. Cross, then resurrection. We persevere. We endure. We remember that Christ suffered for us. We remember that our suffering will end. There's this expression that the windshield is bigger than the rearview mirror. We look ahead to the day when suffering will be no more. The friends who came to comfort Job lived in a time before the cross. They searched and they applied the best wisdom that humans had to offer. But the wisdom of the world lacks this wisdom of the cross. On the cross, innocent suffering is the key to our salvation. And as we keep being shown each week as we work through this book of Job, it's not just about suffering in general. No, the book of Job is more precise than that. It is a book about a righteous one suffering undeservedly. It's a book about Jesus. Jesus didn't get what he deserved. Thank God that we don't get what we deserve. Christ suffered innocently for us so that we might have life with him. I'm going to pray that God might help us remember that. Please pray with me. Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered on that cross though he was blameless, though Pilate could find no guilt in him, so that we might have our sins forgiven. And Father, we do thank you for this book of Job that shows that innocent suffering, while hard, is a key part of your plan for us. And Father, we ask that as we experience suffering in this world, you might help us by your spirit to endure, to persevere, to share in these sufferings of Christ and look forward to the day that we share in his glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.